collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. everyone. It's really exciting to be here this morning with my guest, Dr. Jill Humphreys. Good morning, Jill. Morning, everyone out there on the East Coast. Yeah, Dr. Humph is a trooper and a warrior and is up at 5 a.m. on California time to be with us this morning. It's a real great treat. Jill, this week was actually the 14-year anniversary of my dissertation defense, which you recorded, you video recorded, because Dr. Jill was hip with technology before Instagram, before, like, any type of social media existed. Dr. Jill was going around, like, (laughs) videotaping and documenting stuff like crazy. I love it. So it's really an honor to be here with you, in particular because you've played such a big role in my understanding of systems and in challenging me early on to think bigger, think more expansively. So just want to acknowledge you for that, uh, kind of off the bat, like the first thought at the top of my head. So this month, we're talking about health systems. And I invited you uh, in particular because you have a background in public health. I also know you to be an activist. We've often talked about the links between public health and the legal system because you do so much there. So we're definitely going to go there in today's conversation. But before we go into the depths of the bowels of systems and systems change and activism, I'd love you to just share a story with us about your personal journey. Give our listeners just a little bit of your flavor, kind of a little bit of the flavor that has me know you the way kind of I know you. I am a native, I am a native Los Angelina, and I grew up in Los Angeles uh, during the 60s and 70s. And by the time I graduated as an undergrad, I had become, I'll just say, the beginning of my political awakening, specifically how African-Americans, sort of that journey of us being integrated into predominantly uh, white schools. I was part of the busing program in Los Angeles, voluntary busing program. My parents put me in. So by the time I graduated from UCLA, all I knew was that I wanted to basically go work in Africa because I had begun to challenge everything that I had been taught about education, about our society. So from six on up until now, I've been normally the only Black person or Black woman or or one of few Black people or people of color in predominantly white institutions. But by the time I graduated from UCLA, I basically made the decision to want to go work in Africa. And there was a program through the United Methodist Church, that's my family denomination, that trained young adults in global social activism. And so I was trained 
to explore the way in which U.S. foreign policy impacts every region of the world, everything from the militarization of the Pacific Rim to the supporting of insurgent civil wars throughout Southern Africa, proxy wars throughout Southern Africa. And so I uh, was sent to Zimbabwe at age 22 and was initially a taught in their, it would be equivalent to like our junior high and high school, but at the same time, I was actually exploring and analyzing the way in which South Africa was ex- exporting violence and destabilizing the frontline states. And those are the countries that surround South Africa, such as Zimbabwe, Zambia, Malawi, Angola, Namibia, Botswana, Lesotho, and including Tanzania, because a lot of the liberation movements um, were taken in in Tanzania. So from that early exposure, where I lived in Zimbabwe was on the border of Mozambique, I got exposed to the influx of refugees, exposed to, of course, the way in which U.S. supports violence in other regions of the world. And that really, really awakened me to understanding the intersection between international law, right? That Mm -hmm. is the way in which we categorize people. So Mozambicans who were impacted by the insurgent war in their country were called internally displaced persons, but because they had not left their borders of their country, they couldn't receive assistance, international assistance from United Nations because they were internally displaced persons. You had to be externally displaced to be considered as a refugee. So here you had millions of individuals that clearly were impacted by the war, but couldn't receive assistance from a country that was at incredibly poor. Uh, Mozambique was colonized by the Portuguese and they left, they never really fully, they never developed it. And at the time of their departure, when, when they got kicked out, they destroyed all the infrastructure and they also had not educated many Mozambicans, unlike in other countries. I came back from the U.S. and the second part of my work or placement, and this is where the work really begins for those of us who went through that program, is that we then had to educate the American population about our responsibility to holding our U.S. government accountable to what it was doing in other regions of the world, right? And that is through doing education, which I basically did a series of public speaking throughout the country on U.S. foreign policy towards Southern Africa. I talked about the public health concerns and considerations and impacts of the way in which South Africa was intentionally targeting public health institutions so that people, when they in fact did attack other countries, and they did, they would destroy hospitals and clinics. Mm. And people, right, once they were wounded or injured, didn't have access to these facilities. And that includes just basic maternal facilities, right, to address childbirth, regular checkups, everything that we take for many Americans, we take for granted unless you live in rural populations or Appalachia, where I used to work, or in the inner cities, right, where we also have underserved populations. And so that's my early background in terms of what politicized me and what encouraged me to to pursue a master's in public health with a specialty in maternal and child health care in developing countries. And, of course, connecting that to international law. So thank you for that. And thank you for giving an insight into kind of how you look at the world from having done a comparison between public health, you know, policies and approaches, right? How they intersect politics of war and war strategies as well. 
Tell us more about like, how does your personal journey intersect with all this? Like, so this is going on at the mind level, right? It's this stage in your life where you're becoming politicized and you're educating folks around the role of American foreign policy. Like what is happening in your personal space and your personal transformation that's like impacted by all of this? And I know you're, you're really fervent activist, but also really passionate about healing. So if you could also make the connection there for us. I'd say a big part of my, my life, I'll just say my life is clearly is shaped by my experiences as an African-American or Black American in the context of U.S. violence towards Black people and people of African descent. And so, of course, I believe that African-Americans, all of us suffer from some degree of post-traumatic stress syndrome, or as Joy DeGruy would call it, post-traumatic slavery syndrome, basically trauma. Trauma because of the way in which those of us of African nativity have experienced so much structural violence from our origin over a 500 year period. If we're talking specifically about this geographical space called the United States, you know, which was at one point a, co- a colony of England, then I'd definitely say over 300 years. Because of that trauma, oftentimes not recognized, it gets passed down intergenerational. So it's intergenerational trauma. And even though I think as a young adult, I would say a combination of my family dynamics, because we have to look at family systems, family dynamics that intersect with larger societal and structural issues, that I would say that in my early 20s, I clearly showed or exhibited signs of trauma, particularly coming in, having to go through predominantly white institutions, but didn't recognize it or understand it. I think that me going to Africa, a big piece of that was healing for me. It was healing a part of my psychic trauma, which was the displacement of someone who is of African descent being displaced and or taken, right? And brought to the Americas and wanting and yearning to return to my acknowledged ancestral homeland. I acknowledge that Africa is my primary ancestral homeland, even though clearly I have European ancestry and Native American ancestry, but I identify culturally as an African-American. And I would probably say I also identify specifically, there clearly are Native American elements that my grandparents, particularly my mom's side, share because they're actually Black Appalachians. Appalachia is a culture. Mm. And my parents, my mom's people are from Villarica, Georgia, Carrollton, Georgia. They were there before it even became incorporated. And that particular area or region is Creek, and Cherokee origin. So that intergenerational trauma um, shaped the way in which I over-identified with particularly African people who experienced severe trauma and violence, but yet they received little assistance or attention by the international community. So I went as a witness, like there was something driving me inside that I'm gonna be a witness to this and speak out from the perspective of someone who is of African nativity about the way in which African people are still being brutalized in the 20th, at that time, the 20th century, and be a witness to that trauma in support because I felt like I didn't receive support as an African-American who was placed in predominantly white institutions at the age of six and had to take the level of violence and still have to take the level of structural violence and interpersonal violence that I experienced within these higher education institutions and workplace institutions. So for me, that was a, a being a witness, clearly a, a way in which I was trying to heal my own trauma, personal mm-hmm. trauma. 
being someone who was introduced to yoga at a very early age, age 18, yoga is a system. It's more than just asanas or postures. It's an entire system that addresses our energy centers, our different levels or dimensions of our bodies. And so I understood that there are different ways in which I integrated all of that into my political work. So healing is an integral part and probably the primary part of my political work. It has shaped my teaching because I have a a very in-depth understanding of the way in which sound, right, Shabbat, sound can heal, right, and facilitate the process of movement of energy. So when I'm lecturing or speaking or engaging or working with my students, I'm very conscious of the intonation, the patterns of which I speak, right, to facilitate movement of their own energy so they can receive, right, what I am saying from somebody who happens to be embodied in a Black body and is a woman, and to assist my students to feel safe, that my classrooms are places of safety, or what I call maroon communities, those of us who want to establish or envision new societies. So I think of my classrooms as maroon communities, of course, as you may know, historically are places where not just Africans, but other people who were enslaved fled their enslavement and set up new communities and societies. So I consider myself a maroon in many ways, but I incorporate that teaching or my knowledge of teaching and healing in my classrooms. My classrooms are either formally at the university where I teach, or if I am doing workshops, or if I'm in the streets as a legal observer and I have to interact with people, I take that knowledge and understanding of healing with me and incorporate it in my work because I understand energy, the way to move energy through sound. That's just a snapshot in terms of various types of healing practices. I've studied different healing modalities, as I've shared with you, Ayurvedic medicine, yoga, which is a part of that system. I've studied global shamanism. So I've spent time in the Amazon working with medicinal plants, ayahuasca, working with the, and I've forgotten the name of the frog, but there's a particular frog that also has secretions from its body that if you ingest, it induces or allows you to suspend your ego. Um, or, or activate your pineal gland so you can connect with con- consciously connect with consciousness. Um, I've worked with medicinal plants, of course, in, in Africa, always speaking to the shamans or the sangomas, as they're called in Southern Africa, the Mwawis and Ganda, or all the various healers, even here in the United States. And so I've taken that collectivity of knowledge and understanding and have crafted, I guess, my own personal healing bag, if you want to say. And that's what influences me or shapes my work even today, though I have been doing for the past 15 years as a legal observer with the National Lawyers Guild. That's a little bit about my own personal journey. I've gone through various healing, I'll say phases. I was just sharing with Rita that I apologized to her yesterday because I was in fact doing some more healing work. Joe Dispensa, who is a, <laughs> yes, she familiar. laughs. Yeah, I love right. because I'm familiar. Yep. Yeah, so I was watching Gaia the healing channel or the spiritual channel um, because I've read Joe Dispenza's work but on Gaia for the past week they've allowed you to have access for free mm-hmm. so of course I was loading up and downloading all of Joe Dispenza's work on the ways in which you can access your pineal gland through various types of meditational practices the use of it's not a prism but the use of something like a prism that act that allows you to activate your subconscious mind because I'm adding those tools to my toolbox for my own personal healing and journey as someone who's very interested in intersection between science and spirituality. 
and integrating it with my political and professional work. Thank you for giving us just a little peep into the global perspective that you bring to this. One of the reasons I always find it so refreshing to talk with you is because you have this global perspective, but you also really get the fractals of it all, right? Like you get how there's the individual component of the work, there's the collective component of the work, there's the community component, and then there's the global component and impact. I'm curious, but what do you think are the like most common misperceptions that people have about the American health system? And is there one health system? Okay, so I would say, let me start with the easiest question, the easiest part of the question. Do we have one health care system? So as, as many folk know, we are a republic. We have a federated system, which means that we have both a federal and state and local or county systems. And so each of those systems or levels of government have authority, different degrees of authority. So I would say that we have multiple systems because we, each of those levels have different degrees of authority. So even though we have a national federated, we do not have what I'd say a national system like other European countries. We, so even though we have a federal government, we delegate certain responsibilities to our states, right? Both funding wise through block grants now and authority in terms of, of state rights. And that comes out of our history of this fight that we had about not wanting to be a monarchy. So you have to understand a little bit about our development or the U.S. development from, from its origins, separating from a monarchy, which was a unitary government, to wanting to have a federated government to give state rights, right? So and in addition to having states' rights, it means that each state can develop its healthcare systems in a variety of ways. We've got 50 states and territories. Let's not forget, folks, we do have territories or colonies. Puerto Rico, Guam, Virgin Islands, if I got all of our territories correctly. And so each of those 50 states and territories have different ways in which their healthcare systems are established. And then of course we have counties or parishes, if we're talking about Louisiana, which was French, right? If I remember France. So mm -hmm. parishes in Louisiana, okay. counties in other places. And so, and those counties have the authority to provide the majority, if not all of the healthcare services, allocate the healthcare services through direct service provision. That's why I say that I believe we have multiple systems. We have multiple systems. Then therefore you see variation, of course, across those systems. And clearly politics is involved in that in terms of the level of support or lack of support as we've seen in Puerto Rico, one of our territories after I forget which hurricane impacted, devastated Puerto Rico and our federal government, right, refused to allocate funds and services, or if you currently are watching this drama that's playing out with the COVID, the coronavirus in terms of certain governors have been allocated as part of the team. Oh, we like that governor. Hmm. And then other governors right. have been chastised like their children. Mm, that's right. right. So even though I think that's the most extreme form of um, biasness, even other presidents you see, maybe not to that extreme, but you still have those kind of politics playing out. Given sort of just an out, a little bit about how we're structured both politically and administratively, yes, I believe we have variation within our system. What are the common misperceptions you think that people have about our healthcare systems? Common misperceptions that somehow we're going to become a socialist or communist country. <laughs> Thank you for talking about that one. If we provide universal health care or if we provide any form of entitlements, 
So folks, you once again, you'd have to read a little bit about the development of welfare state introductions that was under Roosevelt in the 1930s, right? Our new, so I'm drawing from this material that I haven't reviewed in a long time. But prior to that, folks, most of our healthcare came through charity, right? Churches or mutual aid support, because we didn't have state, local, to the extent, the kinds of systems that we had. It was more on a local level. And of course, it varied by race and class and gender. Um, I'm teaching women's studies right now. I just taught a section on reproductive health. And so it talked about the way in which at one point in time, sidebar, but at one point in time, women did have more control over their bodies. It wasn't considered a negative to have, quote unquote, what we're calling abortions because the doulas and the midwives had Mm. knowledge of herbs and women still were in control over that aspect of their bodies. It wasn't until the medicalization, the rise of the AMA or the medical field intersecting with the rise of the legal or the laws and the changing social structures. And that, what I mean by that is during the 19th century, we began to have an influx of Southern European immigrants, like from Southern Italy and, you know, African-Americans and other, at that time, I'd say Puerto Ricans, if we're talking about the East Coast, we're talking about the West Coast, we're talking about Hawaiians, because we had by that time overthrown the Hawaiian monarchy. I think by that time we had also acquired Guam and Puerto Rico, Guam and the Philippines to the Spanish-American War. The intersection of all of these changes caused middle-class white America, primarily Nordic or Western Europe, and these new doctors who were primarily men right, if not all men, to think that the society was changing demographically. Basically, they were fear that white women, upper class and middle class white women were not having enough babies because they, in fact, were the ones who were using abortion services. And so we saw the beginning of laws, Mm. right, to take control over women's bodies and redefine women's bodies. And of course, the medicalization, right, and taking over the control of women, something that was women-centered, now became male-centered and institutionalized. That's just a snapshot of our medical, our health system, right? How it shifted. But so we developed healthcare, our welfare state through, once again, it was a political arrangement around World War I. Roosevelt and other political bodies and social movements were pushing to provide medical coverage for the wider part of society. But because our country is a public and a federated system, certain trade-offs are made. And the trade-offs were this. We will provide old age insurance, which is social security insurance. We'll provide widows insurance and we'll provide some degree of healthcare coverage. The, the worthy widows, like we're gonna actually distinguish between the women who are deserving of money because they have uh, kept their legs closed except for their husbands and the ones who are not worthy because they're just loose and they deserve nothing. Exactly. Always needing to regulate somebody's bodies. So very briefly, folks, the political trade-off was this, the Southern Democrats or the Dixiecrats, which are a political body within our political system, the South or the Confederacy, as I call them, the new Confederacy. They basically uh, said that, told Roosevelt, we will not vote or support this bill unless 
you allow the states, right, to make determinations as to who receives these new entitlements or these welfare support. And in doing that, they create labor categories. If you are a domestic worker, if you are a laborer, you will not receive many of these welfare services. Well, think about the majority of people who were in those categories. African-Americans coming out of enslavement were for women, because it's gender, were primarily domestic workers. A segment of Irish women too, Mm -hmm. right, were domestic workers in the North. Laborers, African-American men, clearly. Laborers are also Mexican-Americans, because by this time, folks, we'd already incorporated the Southwest or the Northern part of Mexico. So Mexican-Americans did not receive right, these services. So the way in which they were able to exclude large segments of our society were through these, setting up these categories of who's deserving and who's not. So our healthcare system, again, or the receiving of our health services, again, folks were always, right, predicated by race and class as to who's going to get what and how much and why. Absolutely. And, and how people perceive it. Categories or labor or job categories did not pay into social security because they weren't allowed to. So as a result, then they don't have access, right, to those funds. So there's all these different ways in which our society that people don't know that have always excluded and discriminated against groups of people. And the majority of those people tended to be people of color, right, women, other groups who who were defined as undeserving, right? And that includes large segments of whites, Because if you're talking about the South folks, the South historically was always poorer um, as a provider of cash crops to the North, which added value to those cash crops and created, you know, products that they then exported onto the global market. But I'm just saying sort of the internal dynamics, political dynamics, and then its connection to the larger global uh, linkages. So the misnomer, like I said, was that somehow we're going to become a socialist Marxist country folks, you know, that's not our bourgeois revolution, because that's what we had, our bourgeois revolution, a revolution by the landowners mm-hmm. and folk who were in the mercantilist class. So we did not have a people's revolution if we're comparing it to like in the context of Europe. There's a whole other aspect of our history that's not normally taught. If you're interested, there's a book called The Many-Headed Hydra that talks about that people's revolution that was trying to, and it's still today, it's still there, right? That was in contention with this bourgeois social classes, right? But they did not win that history. There are aspects of that extended war, if you want to call it that, where there were certain areas that, that the people's revolution won certain concessions But if we're talking about the actual structuring of the United States, no, we did not have a people's revolution. It was a bourgeois revolution. And even in the case of Western Europe, if you think about the kind of revolutions that happened there or the kind of uprisings, those were also bourgeois led. And so what you end up with are these social democracies, right? Because there wasn't actually a full revolution of the people by the people. And so what we would end up with is also probably a social democratic Mm. hybrid, right? So thank you for pointing this out. It's like if the backbone of your whole system is capitalism, it's very unlikely that the whole thing is going to shift in a different direction. Uh, What's more likely is that we would have a social democratic approach where we have some benefits that are shared, 
Although, as you beautifully pointed out in terms of how it comes up historically, the contrast between race and class lobbies, really, will always impact the way the system gets structured. You don't shift from rigid capitalism because we really have a pure capitalist society uh, that makes money off of our health, makes money off of, or of our sickness, makes money off of anything at all. So we have a pure capitalist system. It doesn't go from there to socialism. What right. happens typically is it goes from there to like get a couple of benefits. What I love about your laying out of this like brief history, right? And I'm sure you oversimplified it because it's always, you know, so much more complex. But thank you for the level of detail you did give us. What I love about the historical analysis of systems is that it clarifies that these were built, right? Like there was a crisis, there was an intentionality, there were alliances, there were factors, right? I think oftentimes, this is one of the major reasons I decided to start Collective Power. When we talk about systems, people generally approach them from a sense of helplessness. Like, oh, you know, this is screwed up and that is screwed up and that is screwed up and everything is screwed up. So let's just like fold back our arms, sigh and eat a pizza, right? <laughs> pizza is the like international loved food. But there's a sense of hopelessness that often takes over. And I watch, especially in progressive spaces, people dip into that hopelessness and then like force themselves out because it just becomes overwhelming. That's why I said eat a pizza, right? It could be anything, but like, you know, let's dive into how screwed up everything is and then like create some fictional silver lining just so we can cope with it versus what I see the other option to be, which is to really pay attention to how our systems were created. What were the factors that contributed to them being created that way versus another way, which you illustrated really beautifully, right? And then look at what are the factors and the dynamics that are happening currently and how do we leverage the current crisis, right? And where do we go next? And how do we organize our collective power so that we can influence what shifts next? So I'm just curious in terms of your thinking, like, can you speak a little bit to your understanding of collective power? Okay, so I think of collective power, I draw from my history. I'm centered in my history as a person of African descent, who's part of Black liberation struggle as an internationalist. And so I draw from the collective histories that I've seen of African and people of African descent resisting enslavement. That is my point of departure for this particular context. It's not my, my the point of departure of African people. I just want to be clear, yes. right? But as someone who is a, in the Americas or new dia or diasporic African, I'm a part of the diaspora, I think of the way in which my ancestors collectively resisted the beginning of enslavement on the African continent, they collectively fought their villages, folks who were being invaded by other Africans, right? To secure bodies for this, trans this new trade, right? And so collectively together had to work with each other and other tribes that perhaps at one ethnic group, excuse me, well, you know, this word tribe has like negative connotations, but I, so I'm gonna leave that whole conversation alone. I'm just gonna say, I just finished working in Ethiopia and the continent. And so people use different names and have different meanings to them that aren't always negative, used negatively in the way in which the dominant world used the word tribe. So I just wanted to clarify that 
real quickly, but I'll say that different ethnic um, and or nations and nationalities of people, if I use Ethiopia's term from their constitution, collectively had to come together that maybe at one point in time may have fought against each other to try to stop the threat of enslavement. So they had to put their own self-interest, individual self-interest aside to look at the greater good, right? The uprisings and the rebellions that took place on the ships, which we don't get taught much about in history. Once again, Africans who spoke many different languages had to find a common way in which to communicate to figure out a way to overthrow their enslavement on this ship, to have slave rebellions on these ships. So they, once again, people had to put their own self-interest, understand self-interest rightly understood in the greater collective good to overthrow those people who were trying to enslave them, even though they may have come from different, once again, nations and nationalities of people arriving in the Americas, Hmm. right? In a new space, once again, had to think about how they were going to collectively interact with the indigenous people, right? If we're talking about in the 1500s when Spain first set up its attempted colony in Florida, which was overthrown, there was a rebellion that overthrew it with the, once again, collective relationships between Africans and the indigenous people who basically put down the Spanish colony which is why they lost Florida and they traded off Florida to England. Just a little bit of background about the way in which I'm thinking about the interconnection between self-interest and collective good. Let's not pretend, folks, that people don't have self-interest. They do it. I've seen it throughout my entire life, and particularly in left politics. There's absolutely nothing pure about the left in terms of people not having self-interest. That's one of them you asked me earlier about a misnomer. (laughs) Let me put that out there. There's nothing inherently pure, right, about being a leftist or being progressive, right? I think you have to be conscious and intentionally think through the way in which basically your ego doesn't supersede the collective good, right? And I think you also have to have accountability systems so that when our egos do supersede, right? Because we're human, right? Not because we're awful, but because we're human. Because we're human. It's an aspect of being in this material world, Mm -hmm. right? That we have accountability systems that are transparent, right? That allow us to be able to speak honestly with each other, that we can address that. We can maintain a balance, right? I think it's a delicate balance. And be transparent about our self-interests. So we can actually look at how our self-interests can coincide or sometimes even um, be a common layer underneath what we see as the common good, right? Because ultimately there is a way to meet both the common good and the self-interest. Yes. You know, in the words of my grandmother, eating, cooking, cleaning happens everywhere. We do have basic needs that we share. Yeah. Thank you for raising being transparent about our own self-interest. As I've gotten older, I think that has been one of my, my we have these um, biggest pet peeve being part of the progressive, <laughs> yeah. so-called being, quote, in the progressive slash radical, because there is a differentiation. People differentiate even within on the left between progressive and radicalism. Mm-hmm. So the ultra radicals were those people who I consider the organizations that are ultra radical. Which are not the people that the Trump supporters consider radicals, right? <laughs> like Biden is not radical, folks. Biden is 
we know that, but yeah. So being transparent because they're not always transparent. It's a pet peeve of mine. Just be honest. Yeah. You'll just kind of address your question. So anyway, collective power at this point in my life or stage of my life, I am really clear about my intentions. If you talk to people who know me politically, because there's a distinction between people who know me as a friend and political relationship. The other point that people need to be clear about is that your political relationships, some of those may be friends, but most of them are political relationships, which has a different level of responsibility and understanding. But people tend to conflate the two. So I'm real clear. Those people who are my political or who I do political work will probably describe me as someone as, wow, you know, Jill's always talking about accountability systems. What are our governing norms, right? Let's be transparent and ethics. Like those yeah. are like the words, like ethical decision-making. Yeah. When we think yeah. through whether it's our strategies or tactics, what are our responsibilities to each other, right? And then what are our responsibilities to the people that we are in solidarity with? And that's what governs my work. And that comes from my training from the United Methodist Church as a global social activist. Most people don't know that background. That's where I learned it's a core part of my being now. When you think about collective power and systems change, right, could you give us an example? Uh, I know there's a lot of work that you do around creating systems and like, give us an example. And maybe it's the example from your legal work that you pointed out to me. Um, Tell us about how you see collective power and systems work together. Yes, thank you. I am a practitioner, scholar, activist. So my training, my doctorate's in public administration. Once again, public administration is looking at systems, governing systems at all levels, and that's globally. So 2004, I came up for the Republican convention in New York, and millions of people turned out to protest, right? And as I was at the protest, I said, there's got to be something more for that I can do as a social scientist with my skill sets than just marching. Not that protest is not important because it's very important, but I wanted to apply my training as a social scientist in a more substantive way. And I saw an organization called the National Lawyers Guild providing legal observer training. I didn't know what that was. So I went to one of the trainings and they were training people in how to observe demonstrator law enforcement interactions. And by training us in that, we became the on the ground or foot troops to monitor and observe and document if there were any abuses, right, in attempts to curtail people's First Amendment rights to protest. That's qualitative research, that's observation. I'm a multi-methodologist, but I'm a qualitative researcher. That's gorgeous. I didn't know that's actually how you got into the Lawyers Guild. That's wonderful. Thank you. The National Lawyers Guild was founded in 1937. It is the oldest civil liberties law association in the country. It's the first integrated bar association. It was established by Central and Southern Eastern Europeans. So I was trained as a legal observer. And when I moved up to New York in 2005, the most, if not all of my volunteer work was, or being a legal observer, I have observed thousands of protests became exceptionally good at it because I'm a qualitative researcher. In 2014, I believe, was 
Ferguson, and then 2015 was Baltimore Uprising, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. I got a call from someone who asked me would I come to Baltimore and be part of the legal team. And I said, sure. So when I arrived in Baltimore, I thought it was going to be the National Lawyers Guild, because normally the Guild is the organization that gets called in to provide the legal support. That's everything from organizing pro bono legal representation of attorneys, training legal observers and putting them on the streets to monitor and working with organizations that do jail support. When I got there, there was five of us or four of us, and I was the point person to set up and design the legal observer hub. The background is this, during the Ferguson uprising, there was contention between the National Lawyers Guild, which is a predominantly white institution, progressive organization, and people of color, and black attorneys and other people of color. And so there is this recognition that black communities or people of color communities who are most impacted by police brutality, right, should be the primary providers of legal support. So when the Baltimore uprising occurred, that's in fact what took place. These individuals that were initially worked in Ferguson worked with community organizations in Baltimore and selectively identified black and other people of color to make up the legal hub. And so I became that point person. That was the beginning of me using my expertise as a social scientist, really working in depth with community lawyers and other community organizations to set up the first community mass defense system. And the mass defense system is three components. The components are outreach and organizing of attorneys, outreach and organizing of volunteers to be trained and deploy legal observers, and outreach and organizing uh, the jail support. And that's a system that is supported by a remote database that's normally in the cloud or can be offline. That's a system. So I designed those systems. I literally refined that and traveled around the country. Every hotspot that you can think of, I've been there. Baltimore, McKinney, Texas, Cleveland, New York, LA. I've built three systems, all with different, same components, but in different ways. So Baltimore, I could call a community-based governed mass defense system or legal support system because that legal support system was embedded within the community organizations of Baltimore. And they're the ones who basically run it and manage it and it's held accountable to. It's called BALT, Baltimore Action Legal Team. And for me, it's the premier Hmm. legal support model. Then there was the development of that same mass defense system or legal support within a law association in New York, the National Conference of Black Lawyers, of which I'm a member. I'm also a member of the National Lawyers Guild, but NCBL, I designed, trained the local NCBL New York chapter, and we provided legal support to the Black organizations, not just in New York, but it became a model for NCBL's Legal Observer Program. And then I'm a native of Los Angeles. I also designed was the formal advisor to the Justice Warriors for Black Lives, which is a collective. Mm. So there are three models, community-based organizations, law association, and then a collective model in LA, which is composed of lawyers, community members. And so those are the three systems, right, or models that I designed and worked with across the country. So (laughs) link this back to public health for us for a second. And then tell us if you have any final thoughts or how can people follow your work? The link to public health is very simple, folks. Black communities that are most impacted by these mass defense systems 
which are platforms embedded within our communities, right, can be used for a range of issues, including COVID, our slow response in the Black community to COVID. If we had these systems built in place, we could, in fact, bring people together because they'd already be in a database like our public health professionals. So we could immediately rapidly organize and mobilize people and deploy them. Right. So the public health component is, is that we could address our public health needs, everything from education. Very quickly, folks, the COVID messaging doesn't resonate with black folk. Black folk are not listening to things like, you know, the way the, the public health, predominantly white public health professionals mm-hmm. are messaging how we should either get testing, everything from educating us about COVID to testing to sheltering in place needs to be culturally encoded. So that's one aspect of public health. From the context of it in its relationship to the legal support, it's a sense of empowerment. Do you realize that I've trained over a thousand plus people across the country, the majority of whom are black lawyers and community people? I go to different states and people come up to me and say, Dr. Humphreys, you trained me in Baltimore. You trained me in Texas. You trained me in LA. There's a sense of empowerment and transformation and emotional mental health, right? That's a public health component. When you yourself or your community is providing your own support as opposed to having to go to something externally, right. right, as a beneficiary, right? So I'm changing or I'm arguing that we change the structural relationship between white law um, associations and the black communities to not only just be beneficiaries of legal support because we're the protesters, but to become, right, that we become the designers of our own destiny in developing these legal support systems. And we know best in terms of where we need to deploy information, how we need to deploy it, and to make sure that every person in our community is trained, not just those individuals who are providing legal support, but our community itself is well-trained. It's a Cuba model. Let me just get right to the point. Viva Cuba. It's a Cuba (laughs) model. (laughs) I love it. About empowerment, community empowerment, Black empowerment. And that does not mean that's not in a negative way. Self-empowerment, community empowerment. Love fire. You've like risen in me the curiosity to become a legal observer. Like how do people become legal observers? If you want to give folks like a link or something like that around that. Sure. And um, how do people get to follow you in your work? The National Lawyers Guild has local chapters all over the country, Philadelphia. There is a Philadelphia NLG. Each chapter has its own rules or, or criteria as to who can become a legal observer. You can simply either go onto their website, Google like NLG Philly, right? And see when there's a legal observer training and take the training and then ask them whether or not they also accept non-attorneys. I'm a legal worker, folks. I'm a legal worker because I'm not an attorney, even though I work with attorneys. Call your local NLG chapter. Also find out if you're in Baltimore, um, inquire with BALT, the Baltimore Action Legal Team. Because I know that they train community members, right, to be legal observers. If you want to get in contact with me, my email is jhumphreys, that's H-U-M-P-H-R-I-E-S 2012 at gmail.com. Or if you just go to my LinkedIn account, you can shoot me a message and I'll, I'll receive that. 
That's Jay Humphreys, H-U-M-P-H-R-I-E-S 2012 at gmail.com. Dr. Jill Humphreys, what a treat. Thank you for being with us today. I'm really excited to have you back on the last episode of the month in two weeks with Sonia Rosen and our guest for next week. Thank you for tuning in to Collective Power. We've been focusing on health systems. Our guest today was Dr. Jill Humphrey. I'm Dr. Rita Fierro, and I'm your host. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.